You're listening to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast with your host, Vanessa Weisbrod. Welcome to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast. I'm Vanessa Weisbrod here with my co-host, Emily Friedner, and we're broadcasting from the Celiac Disease Program at Children's National Health System. We're so excited to start our new podcast, and tonight we have a very special guest with us. Blair Raber. She and her husband, Steve, founded the Celiac Disease Program, and she's here tonight to tell us a little bit about why they founded the program, why it's so special, and a really incredible new paper that was just published in the journal Pediatrics. So welcome, Blair. Hi, thank you. We're so happy to have you. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. So Emily and I really want to hear about you guys, why you started the program at Children's, and what makes it so special. Well, we started the program about eight or nine years ago after our daughter was diagnosed. And when she was diagnosed, she was uh, 15, almost 16 years old. And I had been taking her to the doctor since she was two years old. She had a really bloated belly. And in the early 90s, during that time that she had a bloated belly, um, you guys are probably too young for this, but there was a famine going on in Ethiopia, and we used to see just horrific photos and footage of Ethiopian children with these big bloated bellies, and it was due to malnutrition. And so I would take our daughter to the doctor, and they would pat me on the head and say, you're fine, she's fine, you're a good mother, everything, you know, you're feeding her everything that you should be. Um, But, you know, she was still having some health issues, actually quite a few health issues, alternating between diarrhea, constipation, headaches, lethargy. Um, And it was like this until she got mono when she was 15. And uh, she was in a new school, and the mono just kind of morphed into these bizarre stomach aches, really strong stomach aches. And um, I just didn't know what else to do. So... I contacted a nutritionist, and within 10 minutes, a nutritionist said, sounds like there's a gluten issue. Um, so, and, and I, meanwhile, you know, was going through my own journey, which was migraines, um, lethargy, brain fog, and my joints hurt. And um, so I actually went to the nutritionist for me, but I told her about our daughter, And she said, you guys um, need to go on the gluten-free diet. So I went gluten-free, and within a few days, I felt a huge change. So I took our daughter back to the pediatrician, insisted on a celiac panel, and she came back positive, which was then biopsied. Her small intestine was biopsied according to the gold standard. And she, sure enough, was celiac. So, you know, it, it was 13 to 14 years from when I knew something was wrong to when she got diagnosed. And my husband and I just felt that that was outrageous in this day and age with all this technology um, that we would have waited so long and our child would have suffered so much. So we decided to start the program. And uh, it's, it's been a, a really great program um, in so many ways. It's, it's a one-stop shop for all the doctors that you have to go to when you're diagnosed with celiac disease. Um, You know, you've got a dietitian, a psychologist, which is super important because it, um, you know, it's a big adjustment to make a lifestyle change 
and especially to make a food change when you're in uh you know your your younger years uh so we instituted um we we hired a psychologist the first psychologist that was hired dedicated to a celiac program in the US to help children make that transition and not to feel so isolated when they pull out their gluten-free sandwich and everybody else kind of is saying, what in the world is that awful-looking thing? <laughs> Remember <laughs> <Absolutely>. those days? <laughs> oh, how could I forget? Um, you know, Emily and I both have celiac, too, so we both totally understand that feeling different and, you know, eating the different food and, and being the one that the weird kid. Right, <laughs> right. Emily, what's what's the weirdest thing that you've ever had somebody say to you about being gluten-free? Um, I don't know if it's weird, except I get a lot of feedback of, oh, I could never do that. Like, I don't know how you live without bread or pasta or whatever it is. And it's just this, like, just this overreaction of thinking that it must be such an awful lifestyle, which, you know, doesn't always feel great <laughs> to hear that from people when they don't really understand the diet. And it's kind of shocking to me because living gluten-free for, you know, eight years now, it, it doesn't seem so difficult anymore. And I always want to try to encourage people to realize that it, it's really not the worst thing in the world once you get used to it. Yeah, the, the change is, is probably the most difficult part. Change is difficult for mm-hmm. everybody. But, yeah. oh, my gosh, when you're on the other end and you feel energized and right. alert and, you know, you don't have aches or stomach aches or headaches, mm-hmm. it is it is the most magnificent feeling. You forget how good it feels to feel good. Definitely. And, you know, Blair, it's really interesting that you were talking about um, how mono sort of incited everything because that's actually the same thing that happened to me. Um, I got mono in high school and I was so ill. I I got it really, really bad for like three weeks. I think I didn't get out of bed and Mm. I was really never the same after that. And that's when all of my health problems started and it, it also took me about six years after that to get diagnosed. Oh, boy. So, you know, yeah. it, uh, after speaking with many physicians uh, now that are experts in the field, I, um, I have a better understanding of autoimmune disease. And mm-hmm. so apparently when, you, when your body has a huge stress like mono or um, a huge illness, a, a pregnancy, a, an emotional stress, that can sometimes act as a catalyst that will mm-hmm. make an autoimmune issue that you may have lurking in the shadows become more omnipresent. And, mm-hmm. uh, and that's what happened with our daughter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, it is fascinating stuff. Mm-hmm. It really is. And it sort of puts into light why it's so important that we have better guidelines for doctors to think about testing so that people aren't waiting six years or 10 years or even longer than that to get an accurate diagnosis. So the big topic for our show today is talking about this best practices paper that was published in the Journal of Pediatrics. It was a project that started back in January of 2013 when a team of pediatrics experts came together at Children's National in Washington, D.C. with this very, very ambitious goal of combing through over 40 years of journal articles about celiac disease in kids and putting together a best practices document that focuses on diagnosis, treatment, and management of celiac disease. So this expert team, they went through over 600 articles and deemed about 170 of them relevant. 
Um, they reviewed them all and developed 25 best practices that were published in pediatrics. Um, this whole project was led by Dr. John Snyder, who led our celiac disease program at Children's. Um, we tragically lost John this summer, um, and we wanted to take a moment for Blair for you just to tell us a few words about Dr. Snyder and what he really hoped would come out of um, publishing these guidelines. You know what? He was such an amazing person. I know that, that both of you knew him as well. Um, his loss is, is a loss for all of us who knew him and even for, for those of us who didn't know him. He was not only an amazing person, but he was a superb physician and he had the highest of standards. He, he was a diagnostician that if you went to see him, he didn't just give you the 10 or 15 minutes. He gave however much time it took. And he had this great ability to step back, take a global view of all the symptoms, and, and you know, chart a new course and try to figure out uh, what was going on with his patients. And I think one of the greatest things about John was, was that his patients loved him. And, uh, you know, I know that the three of us have been at the, the Gluten-Free Expo in D.C. when John has finished talking. And then, of course, people will always approach afterwards and, and ask questions of John. And there were so many kids waiting in line patiently, you know, 20, 25 minutes just to give John Snyder a hug. Their doctor. I mean, I don't know about you. I never wanted to give my doctors a hug and never wanted to see them outside of office visits. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> but, but he had this way with kids where he, he literally spoke to the kids when they were diagnosed with celiac disease. And he, he would tell them that, you know, I've got confidence in you and I know you're going to make the right choices and I know you're going to do your best. And, um, you know, it's hard, this gluten-free diet, when everybody else is eating the stuff that you used to eat around you, but I, I just know you're going to make the right choices. And, um, you know, the kids were better kids for having known him, and I know I'm a better person for having known him. Uh, he just he brought out the best in everybody, and he gave the best hugs. <laughs> he, he really did. I think we're all better people for having known John, and I think Absolutely. that... Absolutely. That this paper is really his legacy in helping other medical specialties look at, at celiac disease and and know the things that they should be screening for. So yeah, that's let, right. Let's, let's talk about some of the big um, recommendations that the paper made. So there were 25 best practices, and 14 of them that the group agreed were very strong things that we should should be looking at. Um, so so they, they looked at bone health, they looked at hematology, they looked at the endocrine system, livers, uh, nutrition, and, and testing. So many, I, what I found really interesting is that most of these things are, are, are common things that we should be doing, that all doctors should be doing anyways. Um, for example, just running a CBC test at, at follow-up, um, you know, routinely checking the, um, the antibody levels, um, making sure that they have no vitamin deficiencies, um, and all of those kinds of things. Um, but do you think that these were things that doctors weren't already doing? You know, I, I think there's so much information out there. You had mentioned that over 600 articles were, you know, kind of included in the beginning, and, and 172 or so of them um, became the ones that they referenced. And I think that physicians take a look at all the literature that's out there, and some of the studies that make 
really sort of groundbreaking claims are super small studies and it's just not enough the enough information to go on to to change the way that things are done um you know it's it's with all that information out there there's really been no roadmap for doctors to follow to follow up with their patients and uh, manage celiac disease in the long term. And the great thing about this study is that it provides a framework, not only using the available literature that, that has been out there since 1973, I believe, is when they started culling from all these articles. And it should be known also that these articles, since we are a pediatric facility, um, and everybody, all the experts there were pediatri- pediatric experts, um, the patients in these studies were under 20 years of age. We should note that. Um, but, but this study not only, uses the available, not only uses the available literature, but it also uses the clinical expertise of the best celiac disease doctors that, that we have in the United States and Canada. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. And the big difference with this study is that even though there have been guidelines that have been previously published, they just haven't generated the consensus on when and how to provide effective management of our celiac patients. And so, and that's big. I mean, this, this really gives the roadmap for our doctors to be able to provide better care. That's so fabulous. So should patients take these guidelines to their doctors for follow-up to make sure that they are aware of what the protocol should be? Absolutely. You know, in this day and age, we have to be our own best advocates. Uh, Gone are the days when, you know, we can rely on our doctors to be able to have the time to read everything. It's just an abundance of information out there. So, yes, I would would highly recommend taking this document and, and giving it to a doctor. Well, we will absolutely put a link to download the best practices up on the show's notes. And Blair, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about these diseases. Um, we really hope that they make it into all doctors across the country's inboxes so that they're doing the right thing. Thank you. We hope so, too. All right. So, I know, um, I, you know, can I make a little point? Um, yeah. When we left off, you all had asked me if people should take in this uh, document to their doctors. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's important for us to note that, that it is super important to take this into your doctors just because um, it's new information. Um, and as you mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, Vanessa, uh, this is information that, you know, some of it is, is well known among doctors or healthcare providers, but others, uh, other pieces of information are not well known. So that's why it's such an important document because it really covers a, a, a wide array of symptoms and, and management of those so, symptoms. So things like a, a newly diagnosed patient should see a dietitian. Those are very obvious things. But, Blair, what are some of the things that were pointed out in the document that are not so obvious? You know, to me, one of the uh, most important things to note is uh, on the part about the liver, um, the question was raised, should routine screening for hepatitis B immunization status be done for all children being evaluated for celiac disease at the time of diagnosis? And apparently, when 
undiagnosed celiac patients are given a hepatitis B vaccine. 30 to 70% of these patients are unresponsive if they wow. have not been diagnosed and they're still on a gluten-containing diet. So this has a huge ramification down the road when people think that they've been, you know, inoculated against uh, hepatitis B and they um, and, and it ends up being, you know, ineffective. That's so interesting. Because they're given multiple doses of the Hep B vaccine, right? Or is it just one? You know, I the can't baby? remember because it, it's been it's been a long time since we've done this with my kids, so I can't remember. I know that my my six month old recently got a, a vaccine um, for it, so I wonder at what point it would become ineffective. I think it's ineffective at the time that it's being given, if. A celiac if undiagnosed. is undiagnosed. Right. That's so they're very still on a gluten-containing diet. And uh, now, whether or not they become, uh, whether or not they respond positively to the vaccine once they're on a gluten-free diet and then they're given the vaccine, I don't know if, if that means that they then stand, you know, if they then fall into the rest of the population that has a, a good reaction to it and a, and a, a proper response. Well, I'm making a note to ask my pediatrician about that at their next visit. Um, so the, some of the other recommendations fall under, under bone health. Um, so for these types of things, if a child is diagnosed really early, is it, is it more important for them to be screened for bone health issues, or would it not matter if they were diagnosed when they're two or three versus a teenager? Well, you know, I think most of the bone, and I'm not a doctor, but most of the bone is laid down in those adolescent years, um, and and I guess in the beginning years too, uh, and and so it's just really important as soon as um, you can to get a proper diagnosis. Uh, and as our as our director, our our late director uh, John Snyder said, if there's ever a mysterious symptom that just isn't responding to to treatment of any kind, you should always consider celiac disease because there are over 300 symptoms uh, of this disease and and it can mask itself as short stature. And when kids who have short stature as one of their symptoms, if they are diagnosed with celiac disease, then they grow like gangbusters once they're put on a gluten-free diet. That's true. Um, for those of you who've worked with our program, mm -hmm. you've probably seen Abe Kuhn, who's one of our longtime volunteers. I remember when he was a little five-year-old, and he actually volunteered with um, with me and Emily when he was just this little, little tiny kid and had been diagnosed. <laughs> and and now he's you know over six feet tall and a varsity basketball player and just went off to college. So it's really amazing to see what can happen. It is incredible. Um, so some of the other recommendations that the, um, the paper makes in hematology, routine screening for anemia at the time of diagnosis, um, routinely obtained CBC results, um, in endocrine, routine counseling about signs and symptoms of diabetes at the time. And, you know, that's a, a pretty important one. Um, I think the statistic is one in eight kids with type 1 diabetes also has celiac. And it's such a high population that our celiac program actually sees patients in the diabetes clinic at Children's Hospital. Um, so definitely a really important um, point to make about that as well. 
And of course, in the nutrition section, um, you know, routine assessment to make sure that the kids are growing um, and seeing an experienced dietitian um, at the time of diagnosis, which I think is just so important for the whole family to really learn about reading food labels, about grocery shopping, um, you know, and keeping themselves safe. So there's um, best practice number 23 I thought was wonderful uh, that basically said that if your blood test is negative for celiac disease, you still can't rule out celiac disease because about 10% of the cases can test uh, as falsely negative. So yep, it's, um, absolutely. It's just I think that's really so important. important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could see a lot of doctors just kind of ruling it out and saying, well, you were negative. Like, that, that's it. This, this isn't an issue. And I feel like as a patient, you really have to be sure to follow up with your doctor and push them to keep searching. And I feel like that's how a lot of people are missed. Right. Right. Uh, And, you know, medicine is never 100%. Um, A lot of people rely on genetic testing to, to gauge whether or not they're more susceptible to celiac disease. But I know that at our children's national health system, we uh, follow two patients who are negative for genetics who have celiac disease. So it's important to always remember that medicine is not 100% accurate. It can be pretty close, um, but, but there's always you know, a gray area. No matter how small, there's always a gray area. And it's really sad if it's your child that falls into that gray area. It's so true. And I think that that point you made, Blair, about being negative for the gene but positive for celiac just really shows how much research we still need to do to understand this disease. Absolutely. And, you know, There's still so well, much we left. Have, we may have identified two potential genes, but 30% of the population is carriers for those genes. So it's, it's right. not a true predictor. Right. And overall, you know, it's, it's, that's why this paper is so great. It really provides a great guide, a framework for healthcare practitioners to to really use to, you know, sort of gather the expertise of seven of the the experts of celiac disease around our country in Canada, and and use it to uh, to figure out how to manage this disease and how to test for it. Absolutely. Well, the paper is definitely um, a tribute to Dr. Snyder and how much he did for this community. And, you know, it will it will last forever. Absolutely. Absolutely. He is missed. He is definitely, definitely missed. Um, Blair, is there anything else that you would like to add about the paper, about the program at Children's or Dr. Snyder? You know, I, I... with respect to to John Snyder, I, I just can't be said enough how he made the world a better place, and he is very missed. But our program, we're committed to having this program continue on and have it be a legacy to his excellence. And um, and he he's he was such a strong part of our beginning. And uh, we can use that energy to keep driving us forward because he's, he's with us in spirit for sure. So he's still watching. <laughs> he definitely is. And we feel his presence all of the time. Yep. Well, Blair, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast this week. And um, 
We'll be sure to put in the show notes links to the, the paper and um, a printable document that patients can print out and take to their doctors. Wonderful. Thank you all so much for spreading the word. All right. So, Emily, now that we've talked all about how to get diagnosed and how to manage the disease, let's talk about what's going on in the news. Mm-hmm. So where should we start? Should we start with the first dedicated gluten-free dining hall? So I love that. I am so, I was so excited by that article um, because I think back to when I was in college, and unfortunately I was very sick then, but I wasn't yet diagnosed. But I think back and I imagine if I had to be eating gluten-free, I don't know what I would have done because, I mean, this was 10 years ago now, but still if you think about typical college campuses, there's just really not a lot of usually really healthy food, especially not dedicated gluten-free food and especially not a dedicated gluten-free kitchen. So this is so awesome. Man, my life would have been really different if there had been a dedicated gluten-free dining hall. <laughs> I know. Um, yeah, 10 years ago and just so few, oh gosh, more than 10 years ago. <laughs> you know, we're dating ourselves here. <laughs> um when I was diagnosed, the only thing that my school said that I could eat in the dining hall was coffee from Starbucks and white rice. So oh, my options are pretty healthy. Yeah, totally right. Totally right. Well-rounded diet for you. <laughs> I could drink as much Starbucks as I wanted, but I couldn't yeah. eat any of the food. <laughs> well, I think that was just so cool. I, I wish that I, you know, I want to go visit Kent State and find out, you know, what their dining hall is like. Um, but it, it mm-hmm. is very cool. And, you know, the school officials said that um, just a growing number of students who are either were eating gluten-free because of celiac disease or sensitivity to gluten or requesting gluten-free items really prompted them to do this. And mm-hmm. I really hope that other schools follow suit and make it easier for kids who have to be gluten-free. Absolutely. And I love that the manager and chef um, in this article said that he's really sampling all the different gluten-free products that are out there and finding the ones that taste the best so that the students who do need to eat gluten-free are really enjoying it. I think that's really great because, as you and I know, there are so many amazing products out there. So I really feel like these kids that are at um, Kent that have to be gluten-free are just so fortunate. Yeah, that's a really important point because so many cafeterias will just order, you know, the cheapest gluten-free options that are available through like Mm -hmm. the major companies because the price point is lower, but it really does make a difference to have good quality, tasty gluten-free food. So kudos Mm -hmm. to them. Absolutely. Yeah. And you could also mention that they use the gluten intolerance groups, um, food service certification. So the entire facility Mm -hmm. is, you know, certified gluten-free. So Students can eat safely there, for sure. Mm -hmm. Definitely good stuff. Yes. So let's move on to talk about um, the possible causes of celiac disease. There's some new studies coming out, and and we should mention there are lots of studies going on around the world. But what Mm -hmm. I think is really interesting about this particular study is that they're suggesting that the amount of gluten given to young children actually has an impact on the development of the disease, um, as opposed mm-hmm. to what some had hypothesized is that the time of breastfeeding um, led to development of the disease. And as a current right. breastfeeding mother, this is of particular interest to me um, mm-hmm. in hoping to prevent the development of celiac disease in my son. Um, right. 
so yeah, I, I find this extremely interesting that it was the amount that the kids were eating um, as opposed to, to when. Right. And I know there's so many, um, and that's something that I had heard a lot was that um, people were thinking that the timing of gluten, you know, if, if kids had eaten it before two years of age, I think it was, or something, they were more likely to, to have celiac or if they were predisposed to it or something like that. So it's really interesting that they actually did this study and found out that it really is the amount. And I wonder, um, I think it says that it was more than five grams daily. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, I just think that's so interesting for um, us to now be getting this type of knowledge and hopefully, you know, using it to help kids not, maybe who are more susceptible, not fully develop celiac. So it's really interesting. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think it's also interesting that this, this particular study um, looked at a population of 8,700 kids, which is a huge mm-hmm. population um, right. for a celiac really study. Is. Normally we're looking at, you know, about 20 patients or maybe five patients, not a huge group of them. So this is really mm-hmm. um, a wonderful group to be looking at. The only thing that I, I definitely want to point out is that I don't think they looked at what the mothers were eating during breastfeeding. So we don't know mm-hmm. if the children could have potentially gotten gluten through the breast milk. Um, so I do That's think that true. would be an interesting point to address in mm-hmm. the future. The thing so maybe the next right. Well, I was I was reading about how, you know, these follow-up studies that they're thinking of doing and one that they mentioned that is really interesting to me is if the addition of probiotics into the diet um, has any effect on the risk of developing celiac. And there's so much research now on the benefits of probiotics that I am so interested in, in that whole study. So I will definitely be following up to see the results of that one. We'll definitely keep our eyes open for that. Mm-hmm. So, Emily, as a health coach, you must be very interested in this last study that we're going to talk about in the growth it's astronomical growth, I should say, mm-hmm. in people who are going gluten-free. Um, mm-hmm. The celiac disease population has stayed steady at about 1% in the United States, but that mm-hmm. um, up to 2% of the population is going gluten-free, which translates to about 100 million Americans saying that last year they ate a gluten-free product. Right. I know. And that is so amazing. I mean, this marketplace for gluten-free products is, has exploded um, which is really good for those of us that need to eat um, gluten-free as well as, I guess, those who are deciding to eat gluten-free. Um, so, yeah, this is really fascinating to me. And I know there's a lot of celebrities and athletes that are going gluten-free, which is kind of sparking others to do the same. Um, but, yeah, it's really interesting. And I think some of what is behind that is that a lot of gluten-free products are, you know, your breads and your baked goods and your pastas really, like, simple carb heavy foods. And I think that there is um, some benefit to limiting those foods just from a health standpoint, um, because, you know, they break down into sugars and there's not much our body can do with those simple carbs. So I think from a certain standpoint, um, eliminating some of those foods is just generally healthier for everyone. So I think that that's something um, that people are picking up on. And also there's a lot of people that think that gluten isn't really a natural part of the human diet. If you think about Um, I know the paleo diet is really popular and that kind of goes back to an era when we were just eating really natural um, vegetables and meats and things and there weren't really cultivated grains around. So some people feel like that is really the way that we should be eating 
And in terms of an evolutionary standpoint, it's a very short time between the time when we were eating that way and how we're eating now. So, or how we've evolved to this point, it's a very short time period um, from an evolutionary standpoint. So our bodies function in much the same way. So people, some people think that we really shouldn't be eating those things and our body doesn't really know what to do with all these really grain heavy foods. So I think there's, you know, people come at it from different ways, but I think that just some of those theories and thoughts about health are, are gaining popularity and people are just cutting out gluten to try to feel better overall. Yeah, definitely. So the article that we're talking about mentions that um, last year, um, Americans spent $4 billion on gluten-free specialty products. And when I mm-hmm. saw that number, my first thought was, wow, that's crazy. But what would happen to that number if we added in all of the naturally gluten-free products? Because I'm guessing that most of those aren't included in that, in that $4 billion. And I'm talking about things like fresh fruits and vegetables, you know, proteins, like mm-hmm. things that are just naturally good for us. And, right. Oh, yeah. It would skyrocket, I'm sure. Um, and I just think it's important to point out that while there are, this, there's this great marketplace of products that are, you know, gluten-free and safe for people who have celiac disease, that there's also this whole grocery store of things that are not only, you know, safe for people with celiac disease and who are gluten-sensitive, but that are also good for us. Mm-hmm. Definitely, yeah. I think that it's sometimes... Um, when people think about gluten-free, sometimes I think we immediately jump to all of those packaged products. But really, if you had to, you could eat a very healthy gluten-free diet without ever eating a packaged product. So I think that that's kind of interesting as well, that um, we sort of gravitate to those, you know, chips and crackers and cookies and things like that, that we are so much a part of our diet now, but really we, we don't really need to be eating those things. We could eat fresh meats and vegetables and potatoes and things like that. So yeah, I'm sure that everyone is eating a lot of gluten-free foods that they may not even realize. Yep. So now this is probably not a good segue, but have you seen the explosion of gluten-free pumpkin products on the market right now? Yes, I have. <laughs> I actually live very close to a Trader Joe's and they have like pumpkin bread and gluten-free pumpkin waffle mix and all kinds of amazing things. So yes, if we're going to talk O's. about packaged goods, <laughs> yeah. this is definitely the time to, to do it if you're going to do the packaged goods, I think. <laughs> I was pretty impressed walking down the aisle of Trader Joe's, the sheer number mm-hmm. of things that were labeled gluten-free and pumpkin. I mean, <laughs> it's remarkable. And they all taste fantastic. Um, yep. Yeah, Trader Joe's has some good products. I, I know we've had a lot of people talking about being disappointed recently with Rice Krispies discontinuing the gluten-free um, variety. But let me tell you, mm. the pumpkin O's in place of Rice Krispies are, are quite fantastic. Yeah, your seamless transition. You, you don't even miss them. Seamless transition to Rice Krispies <laughs> treats. <laughs> Perfect. That's how better it is anyway. Delicious. But there are just so many different options out there now. And, you know, like we could always drink the pumpkin spice latte, but it's pretty nice now to be able to make gluten-free pumpkin pancakes. And there were even pumpkin soup crackers and pumpkin Uh bread and just so easy to make. Um, So I do think that we live in a good time to be gluten-free. When I was diagnosed, you know, 
in 2004, there was like nothing. And so it just feels very good to walk down uh, grocery store aisles and, and see things that I can eat too. Yeah, and, and a lot of things are really nicely labeled or organized together on the shelves or something. So it's really, um, if you just keep your eyes open as you're shopping, it's really um, a, a totally different experience now. <laughs> That's for sure. Well, we want to thank everybody for listening tonight. And a special thank you to our, our partner um, on the podcast, um, the Boke Foundation. So thank you again for listening, and we'll be back soon. You're listening to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast with your host, Vanessa Weisbrod.